Good morning, Chapel. How's everybody doing this morning? You sound good, look good. It's a good week after Easter, man. Our um our volunteers, our champions just did such an incredible job. I know I said something about it last service last week. Just our, our worship team, we had a couple rehearsals with the choir and then our media team and all our volunteers just served faithfully all weekend last weekend, just doing incredible. Even our kids' ministry, uh, Madeline Lowry had her baby about a month ago, and so she's been out, and her team is just an incredible job. Could you just give them a big round of applause real quick all over the room? We have just incredible volunteers. We One of our, our values here is we want to be an empowering church. We want to be the most empowering place on the planet where people could find their purpose, and we can empower them and release them to run with that. Just watching people do that, it's just absolutely incredible and just humbling for me. As a leader, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 10. I'm going to jump around quite a bit today as we're back in our our series on the Apostles' Creed. Um, and today we're going to talk about just how Jesus is the going to judge the living and the dead. And so we're going to jump around. Your notes may be a little bit wrong. I'm going to my sermon is either going to be an hour and 45 minutes long or an hour long, and so you'll figure out which one it is at the end of service. Um, so I'm going to try to save you a little bit and just really nail down, I think, what God has given me for you this morning, which is really different for me to just sit on something and just drive it home really, really hard. And so Jesus is judge of the living and the dead. And so, you know, in our culture, we're infatuated with, with justice. We're infatuated with crime shows and dramas and courtroom shows and movies and, and just justice in general. We hear a lot about social justice and injustice, all these things. And, and so these shows kind of pique that interest. They, they take a hold of that desire for justice. And so I don't know what we can tell your age. If you were a Perry Mason fan, raise your hand. Lord Jesus. If you're a Suits fan, raise your hand. All the Suits fans. Okay. What about um, what's NCIS? Raise your hand. Okay, what about CSI? Raise your hand. What about the show Cops? Raise your hand. Who remembers Cops? Okay, how many of y'all been on Cops before? Raise your hand. <laughs> like my favorite cop story was back home in Nashville, one of my buddies was a cop, and he said, man, I arrested this guy the other day, and he said, I pulled him over, and he said, you could smell weed all over this guy. He said, and I pull him over, I get him out of his truck, and he's got a bag of weed literally hanging out of his pocket. He's like, son, you know, I'm trying to be nice to him. He's like, sir, do you have anything in the car or on your body that I should know about? And the guy's like, no, sir. He said, so you sure you don't have any weapons in the car or on you or any drugs in the car or on you? He said, no, sir. I would never do anything like that. And so the cop said, well, sir, what about that bag of weed hanging out your pocket? He looks down at the Weed looks back at the cop and says, sir, these are not my pants. <laughs> right, like cop shows, like we, we love it. Judge Judy, Judge Brown, we love those shows of, just, of, of, of justice being performed. And what we're really seeking is, is perfect justice. We all have in us this desire for perfect justice, but in our world, in our culture, we only have human justice. And human justice is very flawed it's failed, that if, if you lose a loved one to a crime like murder, they'd be able to put the, the offender in prison, but they can't bring back your loved one. That's an imperfect style of justice. And we live in a, in a world where different countries have different justice systems that they try to, to seek justice, but none of them actually reach perfect justice. Even in America, as much as we've tried, it still fails. Innocent people go to jail. Guilty people get off. 
Jurors are influenced. Judges accept bribes. You got lawyers making tons of money but not really doing their job. It's a failed system. We've seen this many times. There's the story of Andrew Hatchett, who's a special needs guy out of the Midwest. He was on crutches at the time, special needs, and he went to the same house every day to check on his aunt. He goes to his house, and, and it happens this one day that this lady was murdered in this housing project. And Andre wasn't even there, had a clear alibi, the whole nine. He's special needs, he's, he's on crutches, like it's hard to murder somebody when you're on crutches and all this stuff. But there was another guy that got arrested for another crime who then wanted to get off for his burglary, so he starts trying to identify people as a part of this murder. So they accuse Andre of this murder, even though he wasn't there, even though he was innocent, and Andre spends 25 years in prison until finally DNA evidence evidence caught up where he was then released after 25 years serving being innocent. Or the Beatrice Six were six young, you know, outcasts out in the Midwest who are just wanderers and gypsy-type fellows. And somebody, a grandmother was murdered, and they started accusing these outcasts because it's always easier to blame people that aren't like you. So they blame these outcasts, Beatrice Six. They take them into custody, and a local police psychologist starts trying to convince them that they committed the murder. They just couldn't remember because they suppressed the memory of it. And so five of them actually confessed. The other one's like, nah, bro, this is crazy. I'm not confessing to anything. I didn't do anything. And it took them 18 years to prove that they were innocent. We live in a world where as much as we want justice, justice many times just doesn't happen. It's human justice. It's flawed. And what we really want is perfect justice, where the guilty have to do what they deserve, the innocent get repaired or restored back, where we're looking for justice, that if my loved one is killed, that they can bring my loved one back, or if they were abused or assaulted, that they can restore their memory, get rid of the trauma. We're all looking for perfect justice. But what happens is many times we want justice for those people. We want mercy for ourselves. We want justice for all those people out there. We want mercy for us in here. And we have this improper justice. And I would argue that the desire for justice is literally an apologetic to the reality of heaven. That our desire for justice is an echo of the justice that exists in heaven. The animals don't seek justice. You know, if a, if a dog gets murdered by another dog, the dogs don't do gather together, set up a court date. They have a defender and a prosecutor and go through a whole justice system. No, we're the only creation on earth that seeks justice. Why? Because Imago Dei, we are made in the image of God. Eternity in heaven is in our hearts. And we seek justice because justice is a characteristic of God and is a characteristic of heaven itself. And so when it says Jesus is the judge of the living and dead, it should be a, a beautiful reminder that our God is a God of justice. In Isaiah 30, it says this. It says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. He is a God of justice. And when he returns, he's going to judge the living and the dead and restore everything. True justice is right. Everyone who's guilty will have to pay either through the blood of Jesus or through their own blood, and everything that was taken away will be restored, and we'll see just, it'll be the greatest cops episode you've ever seen. It'll be the best Judge Judy you've ever seen because everything that's been in your heart for your entire life will come to pass. It says this in Acts chapter 10. 
starting verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, and this is Peter preaching the gospel to the Gentiles really for the first time. So this is the apostle Peter preaching the gospel, not Bobby Gorley preaching the gospel, Billy Graham preaching the gospel, Stephen Furtick, T.D. Jakes. Many times we preach from different perspectives. This is Peter preaching it. He said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, which is great when you're a judge because you're impartial. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, from the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are as witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. But they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him afar after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so Jesus is preaching, and literally his ending part is not the love of God. It is that he is a judge, and that everyone will be held accountable to Jesus as judge. And then Second Timothy chapter 4 says this, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick or the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. That we preached last week, Jesus resurrected, but he is returning. And when he returns, he's not coming as Savior, he's coming as judge. And he's going to right every single wrong. And everyone living shall be judged. And everyone that's dead shall be judged. And judgment in the Greek has two meanings. It means condemnation, but it also means rewards. Those who are saved will be judged and receive rewards. Those who are, are not saved will be judged and receive condemnation. And as, as difficult as that is to preach, that is the reality of the return of Jesus. That those of us who are saved, it's with great expectation that our Savior is coming to bring to us heaven on earth and to restore everything, wipe away every tear, to get rid of sickness, to get rid of disease, to get rid of death, and to make all things new again. And he will reward us for our faithfulness. But if you're not saved, it should be a dreaded agony of his return. Because when he comes, it will be too late. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, either ahead of time or after it's too late. But every knee will bow. And when he comes, those who aren't saved or under the blood shall be condemned and spend eternity away from him in hell, serving Satan and his demons in hell. It is the reality of the situation. Why? Because God is a God of justice. He's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. And when you read the Bible, there's so many legal terms in the Bible. When you read the Bible over, you'll hear about covenants and contracts, testifying and witnesses. You'll hear about judges. If you read the book of Luke, it's over and over again. Jesus used many parables of judges. The judge said this, the judge did this, the judge acted like this. And you'll see it in the Bible's full of all these, this legal language, like you're watching this courtroom drama. It's like you turn on CSI and you're seeing it unfold in ancient Hebrew. It's all these things. And so I've always wondered why. Why is there so much language about legalities? Why is there so much language about 
contracts and covenants, annulments and divorces, inheritances and guarantors of, inher- of covenants, all these things. Why? It's because in our world, did you realize that our legal system is nothing more than a terrible replica of what's in heaven? That when it describes the heaven, it describes the courts of heaven. Touch your neighbor and say courts. So that means if you grew up like I did, that's, that's not a good thing. Maybe for you, you, court's being good to you. For me, my first experience was 14 years old in front of juvenile court uh, Judge Brown. I'll never forget. Because I had court coming up. My buddy's like, oh, man, Judge Brown. He's like, man, you're not going to understand a word he says. And he's ruthless. So I go, first time, 14 years old, go for Judge Brown, and he talks like this. I think he had a tobacco chew in his mouth. And I'm sitting there thinking, am I getting the electric chair or am I getting off? And you didn't go, find out until you went to the clerk and got your paper showing you have 40 hours of community service. And so I saw Judge Brown, 14 years old, 16 years old, 17 years old. We came on a first-name basis. So when the Bible describes heaven as courts, I get a little nervous. Because if Judge Brown is there, I may not get in. It describes these courts. Like when you read the Bible, and when you read the tabernacle and the temple, there's courts there. It is describing courts of heaven. When you read Revelation, there's courts there. And so what's happening is that our legal system, our legal minds are nothing more than these echoes of heaven where heaven is set up with this tribunal of courts and legal systems. And when Adam and Eve were in the garden, God gave them all authority legally to possess the Garden of Eden and everything on earth. He said, be fruitful and multiply and, de- and have dominion or authority or legal right over everything. Adam and Eve were given legal authority. But they surrendered their authority and their possession to Satan. So when they had legal authority, they gave up. Now Satan has legal authority or dominion on earth to operate, so now you have this this fighting over the possession of earth between heaven and hell. Heaven's trying to bring heaven down to earth. Hell's trying to bring hell up to earth. That's why we live in the world we live in. It's this cataclysmic, cosmic battle of legal authority on earth. You would say, Pastor, I just don't believe Satan has legal authority. Really, what says this in John chapter 12? Jesus said, he is the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2, verse 2 says, he's the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, he's the God of this world, talking about Satan. 1 John 5, the whole world is in the power of the evil one. Make no mistake about it, Satan has authority on earth. And it's legal authority. You read the book of Job, it's a limited authority, but he has authority. Basically, God gave him authority over everything but Job's soul and spirit, but everything else on earth, he has legal authority over. And so this whole world is based on this legal system or this courtroom drama in which Satan has legal authority, and he's using that authority against us. That's why when somebody's demonically possessed, they are possessed. You know what possessed means? Legally owns. Why? Because Satan has gotten somehow legal authority over their life because they opened up a door or surrendered something to him that gave him ownership. And so you see this throughout the Bible in Psalm 82. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. Some translations say in the courts of heaven. In the midst of God, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? 
Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver from them the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So that's God talking about how bad the judges here are on earth. But he said, I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like a prince. But he says, arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. He's saying when Jesus returns, he's going to judge every single person and take his inheritance back. He's going to take his authority back on earth. That's why there'll be a new heaven and a new earth when Jesus comes back, because he takes authority back, kicks the devil out, takes back the keys and takes back authority on earth and restores the Garden of Eden back. Daniel 7, verse 9 and 10, Daniel has this vision. He says, I looked and thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days, which is a name for Jesus, took his seat. His his clothing was as white as snow and the hair of his head pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning. I was reading this week and I, I thought, is Jesus sitting in a wheelchair? Why is he on a throne with wheels on it? He says, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So you see it from Genesis. You see it from Psalms. You see it from Job. You see it here. Daniel has his vision. You see it in Revelation chapter 3 and chapter 4. You see this courtroom of heaven that's taking place. And what happens if you don't understand the rules of the courtroom, you can't be successful in the courtroom. If you don't know how the the book works, if you don't know how the law works, you can't be successful before your trial. And so you have to learn the rule book, which this is the, the law book. You have to know the law in order to defend your case. If you don't know the law, the the accuser, the, the prosecutor will get you caught up on charges and you may be innocent. And so if you don't know the law, you don't know what's going on. And so you have this tribunal, this court system in heaven where your petitions, your prayers are where you're petitioning the judge your case, where you make your case. And so when you realize that you go before God as a father, as a king, but also as a judge where you're taking your case before him. Judge, I'm going through this. I need this. Luke, he says, who? Even an evil judge, if you take your case before him and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going, he will at least answer your petition. Your petitions are your prayers. Satan is the, the prosecutor, the, the, the attorney that's trying to get you caught up on charges. You have the angels who are the clerks who are, who are writing down everything in the books of life and everything in the books. They're writing down everything that happens in our lives and happens in heaven. They're writing it all down. And you see all these things that transpire. The elders, the 24 elders, or the witnesses, it says in Hebrews, are the witnesses that you'll have witnesses in heaven before the accuser that are testifying on your behalf. No, I know Bobby. I know that's not what he's like. I saw him do good. I saw him serve Jesus. I saw him be faithful. There's witnesses, which is why the body of Christ is so important. You may need witnesses in heaven. And so you see this courtroom drama unfolding. It's Jesus as this judge. And people ask, well, how can Jesus be judge if he's the one that's going to condemn us? Well, he's not the one that's going to condemn us. The law condemns us. Jesus saves us. When you go to court, some of y'all, obviously you grew up a little bit more bougie than me. I've been to court a lot before I was 18. 
when you go to court, the judge is not the one that's condemning you. The judge doesn't have an opinion of you. The judge goes by the law. And the law says, this is what happened. This is what the law states. You are guilty according to the law. And so the law condemns us. That's what Jesus, John 3, he said, the Son of Man didn't come to judge anyone because we are already condemned by what? The law. See, the law condemns us. Every single one of us is already condemned. In Romans 3, it says this. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law condemns us. Every single one of us has broken the law in some form or fashion. There is not a single person who says, no, pastor, you don't know me. I grew up. I was homeschooled, I went to VBS, I went to Christian high school, I went to Christian college, I, I married a Christian man, I've done it all. But I'm sure at some point you watched maybe one episode of MTV. Or you posted something on Facebook that was not edifying, encouraging, or uplifting. Everybody has fallen short of God's holy standard. It even says that if you think you're righteous, your righteousness is filthy rags compared to the righteousness of Jesus. And so we're not condemned by Jesus. We're condemned by the law. And the law has the inability to save. That's the whole point of the Jewish religion was the law can save us. The law can't save you. It only condemns you. And so that should be a salvation. So the law condemns us. So all of us are already condemned by the law. But then Jesus is our righteous judge says this in John 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So God the Father says, I'm not going to judge. Jesus, I'm going to give you as a son. I'm going to give you authority to judge. And what I think is interesting, Albert Moeller says this. He says, part of God's vindication of his Son is that the one who is so wrongly judged by humanity will now come to execute righteous judgment upon every single human being. Like to me, that's interesting, that the same people that chose Barabbas over Jesus, Pilate who chose to crucify Jesus though he was innocent, all these people who judged him, saying he wasn't the son of man and they mocked him, betrayed him, part of God's vindication for his son is to say, in your imperfect judgment, you judge my son incorrectly. So to vindicate him, I'm going to now set him up as judge and let him judge all of humanity through righteousness and perfection and in beauty and in purity to bring proper justice. And what better judge to have than what John said, he is the word and the word is him. He is the law. So if he is the law and he fulfilled the law and he's judging based on the law, who knows the law better than Jesus? Who knows the, the law book better than Jesus? Who knows the rights and the rules and the authorities of heaven's court system better than the son who came from heaven to earth? He's the perfect judge because he's not judging based off his degree from Harvard or Yale Law School. He's judging based off he is the standard. He is the fulfillment. He is the savior. He is everything the law talks about. He is. So who better to be judge than Jesus? It's like, yeah, but it just seems so harsh. Like, I want him to be my 
my, my Savior. I want to be my, my Father. Yeah, but don't you want him to right every wrong? Like, don't you want real justice? Like, don't, when you look at the world, you hear these cases, like I just said, about these people who are, who are innocent but thrown in jail as guilty for you. Don't you want that stuff to be right? Don't you want the fact that, that people still die at the hand of Satan? The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He's placed so many people in the grave since the Garden of Eden that Jesus is literally going to cast Satan into hell and resurrect everybody back Give them new bodies, which is true justice. He takes care of the offender and restores everything back. That's perfect justice. But you can't get to perfect justice if he's not the judge. And so in our heart for justice, we have to know that he's the righteous judge. So I have my fake judge's robe. I may need help with this, actually. I looked all week. Don't judge me, girl. You ain't never been to court. You don't know. He sits with, in heaven with his robe on. He's the judge in heaven. And he's the righteous judge. And so every judge has the robe as an as a illustration of their authority. And so you've never seen a judge on the bench without a robe on. Like I'm, I'm friends with Will Powell and, and Judge Self being, and, and Judge Graves. If you see them out in town, they don't have a robe on, right? But when they're on the bench, they have the robe on because that's the signature of their authority and their ruling, judging powers. And so in this courtroom, Jesus is wearing a robe. That's why every time you see him mentioned in Revelation or the book of Daniel, he's always got a robe on. Why? It's his judge's robe. And so in this courtroom, you have Jesus as the righteous judge, but then you have Satan as the accuser. Touch your neighbor, say accuser. Which means he's the sleazy, nasty, dirty, cheap prosecutor. It says in Revelation 12, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. He's the accuser. Who's the accuser? The prosecutor. So in this courtroom, you have Jesus as the judge sitting there, and Satan comes day and night making accusations, not against Jesus, not even against the Holy Spirit. Day and night he's making accusations against you. Touch your neighbor say, about you. He's literally going before the throne talking to Jesus about you. You don't know what they're really like. That's what he did to Job. If you really knew Job, if he took away his blessings, he would curse you and die, God. He said, you know what? Try it. And every single moment ever since, every single one of us has been brought by Satan before God trying to accuse us that we're not really faithful to him like we say we are. He's been accusing you of your motives being impure, your ways being evil, your, your righteousness not being true. He's been accusing you, accusing you, accusing you, accusing you, accusing you, day and night before the throne of God. That is why spiritual warfare is so important because he's working overtime to accuse you. You know why anxiety is increasing? Because Satan's accusations are increasing. Anxiety is nothing more than you feeling the accusations of the enemy from heaven. We well, don't feel good enough. You don't know if you're going to make it. 
You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You don't know if God's a provider. You don't know if he's going to take care of you. You don't know if he's a healer. You don't know. All anxiety is is a manifestation of the accusations of the, of the enemy. And when he accuses you over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, it weighs on you in this legal court system that you have to hear all these accusations in your spirit over and over and over again. He'll bring your past up against you. Well, you know, you don't really know what they're like. I, I, I know them, Jesus. Here's who they're really like. In college, you should have seen some of the frat parties. You don't know what it's like behind closed doors at their house. They look good on Sunday morning, God, but at their house, this is what it's really like. He uses anything and everything he can against you. If you've ever been to court, they will dig deep into the archives of your life and bring things out. And they'll bring them out to try to win the case, and Satan will stop at nothing to win the case against you. Why? Everything he has is at stake against us. And he accuses, he accuses, he accuses, he accuses, he accuses, he accuses day and night, night and day, over and over and over again. And so the question would be for you, how do you defend yourself in this court system as he's accusing you and saying all these nasty things about you? How do you defend yourself? When you know he's saying things about your past, saying things about you, how do you defend yourself? Do you start telling God, God, you know, I, I try really hard. God, that's not who I am. I, I used to be that person, but now I'm going to church. I'm doing better in my life. Do you start telling, well, God, you know, you know I got in ministry. I, you know, I, I preach every week. I, you know, I try to serve the church. I, I do this. I try to do good. I, I got a tithe. I try to, do you start trying to show him your good works? Because even people in the Bible, Jesus, there'll be people that cast out demons in his name. He'll say, I never knew you. So those things don't work. That's just works. So if you try to offset the accusation of the enemies with, with the enemy with works, you're going to fail. And you, all you do is create a religion out of works. And so how do you defend yourself to this accuser who's just accusing you day and night, night and day? Do you just plead for mercy? Do you just tell him he's a liar? God, you know who he is. Look at his track record. How do you defend yourself in the courtroom of heaven? Like, how do you do it? And how do you understand? Like, either you're going to defend yourself, which if you know anything about court, is the dumbest thing you can possibly do, or you can get an attorney. So I can defend myself and just tell God, you know, God, you know, what he's saying is not true. I've done this. I've done that. I've done this. Now, you know, that's not true. You can fight. But what I've learned is humility is not needing to defend yourself. And so when you start trying to defend yourself, what you actually start trying to do is you're actually proving your guilt. And so you try to defend yourself and build this case and think you know the law in and out, try to build this case against Satan, try to defend yourself, or you can hire an attorney. And I, I don't, there's only one attorney in heaven, and his name is Jesus. People say, well, I don't understand. How can Jesus be full of justice and full of love? How can he be full of both? Well, he's judge, but he's also our defender. He loves us enough that he, he comes down, he shows us how to do it, but he comes our defender. It says this in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you to so show you that you may not sin, so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteousness. You have an advocate. Touch your neighbor and say, you have an attorney. And it is not Shannara. No matter how many billboards you see in heaven, you can't call Shannara. You can only call Jesus. 
And so when you're defending yourself, it's calling you. But if you call on Jesus as your Lord and Savior on, work, now, on earth, now he's defending you. He's defending you. He's advocating for you. He's your defense attorney. And what happens when you have a defense attorney, they tell you, don't say a word. You shut your mouth. I got the case. So you sit back. You only talk to your attorney. You don't have to talk to, to the, the other attorney, the prosecutor. You just talk to your attorney. You're pleading your case to your attorney. Your attorney then defends your case before the judge. You're saying, Pastor, this makes no sense. How is he the judge and the defender? What's well, like this? When Jesus came to earth, I didn't see him judge anybody. The woman caught in the act of adultery. She's caught in the act of adultery. They accuse her. They're trying to get Jesus to judge her based on the law because the law condemned her trying to get him to judge her righteously, he starts drawing in the sand, and all of a sudden he tells her, where are your accusers? She says, I don't know, they left. He says, neither do I accuse you or condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Even Judas, when he betrayed him, he didn't judge. You don't see Jesus judging anyone on earth. Why? Why would he, if he's the righteous judge, if he's the judge of living, and then why would he not judge anybody on earth when he had the chance? He could have just judged anybody. Well, the reason is because he had to come off the bench. The bench is in heaven. He came off the bench, and when he came off the bench, he had to take off. The robe, leave it in heaven, and come down to earth, not as judge, but as a defender. And so now he's the defender. He's walking around earth. He's getting clients. And he's telling them, hey, I, I know what he's accusing you of. I know the way they accuse you. And listen, I got you. Now go and sin no more. He tells you, just go do what you need to do. I'm not going to judge you, but go and do what you need to do. What he does, he came for, he left his judge's robe behind to come live everyday life in order to show people that he could be their defender and their attorney and their advocate. Why? Because he loved them just like a father who's a judge could come off the platform, off the bench to help his child. He comes off the bench down to earth, sets his legalities aside to walk in relationship in order to build some clients so now he can defend them before himself. So how does love and justice work? Justice is the position. Love is the relationship. Justice is his, his authority, but love is his motivation. Even in justice, he doesn't want justice just for justice sake. He wants it because he wants to restore justice to those he loves. He wants to restore and renew. And so you have this attorney who's walking around earth like Robert Shannara, just getting client after client after client after client after client after client. Why? So that when the accuser comes, he starts accusing Anthony, come here. He starts accusing Anthony of everything Anthony's ever done. He's telling, hey, you don't really know Anthony. I know he's nice. He's smart. No one can be that nice, God. No one can be that kind. You know, he's a fraud. He's a fake. I know he serves out there, but he's not really serving. He's really stealing everybody's money and their communion cups. He's stealing the bulletins. You don't really know. And he's just accusing day and night, night and day. He's accusing over and over and over and over again. He can either defend himself and say, God, he's a liar. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, God, I do this, I do this. He can defend himself. If he does, the enemy will find a catch and get it. But if Anthony says, I plead the fifth, and my attorney's going to come, and Jesus shows up, I promise you, as soon as Jesus shows up to the stand, Satan is trembling. 
Because he tried him in the wilderness of 40 days and 40 nights to accuse him and get him caught up. And he couldn't get Jesus caught up. He couldn't get him accused. So then Jesus shows up and he's like, oh, not again. And he takes on the same attributes as he did in the wilderness for Anthony. He says, listen, no, no, he's not falling to that because here's what the word says. No, he's not claiming his own righteousness. His righteousness is filthy rags. He's claiming my righteousness. I, he's pleading my blood. He's pleading my things. I'm his attorney. And he starts to defend him for himself in the court of heaven. And then Jesus, you're good. Jesus then comes back up and who puts back on the rope. And who better to judge my case than my own attorney? Puts back on his robe and says, according to your attorney's argument, according to your attorney's plea, I find you not guilty. See, being guilty or not guilty is not based on the actions. It's based on who you know. And anybody who's been in the court system, you know. It ain't a matter if you're guilty or not. It's how good your attorney is. Well, how do you know how good your attorney is? You know who your attorney's connected to. If your attorney's friends with a judge, you're probably getting a plea bargain. If your attorney's not friends with a judge, guess what you're getting? Time. It's all about who you know. And with Jesus, that's why the coming down is so important. It's all about getting to know Jesus. So now he's on your side. You give your life to him. And now all of a sudden, he's your defender. He's your attorney. Now in the courts of heaven, you have an advocate that when you're going through something, you don't have to go directly to the judge. You can go to the throne of grace, but you can go to your attorney and say, listen, this is what's going on. I need some help in this case against the enemy. I'm dealing with anxiety. I'm dealing with sickness. I'm dealing with disease. I'm dealing with the loss of loved one. I'm dealing with all this stuff that the enemy is doing and accusing me of. I need your help. And he defends you in the courtroom of heaven. It's this powerful, powerful display. I mean, who needs Johnny Cochran when you've got Jesus? And it's so sad because so many believers try to defend their own cases. And when you try to defend your own case, you're actually proving you're guilty because if you're pleading your own case, it means you don't really know the attorney. Because if you knew the attorney, you know he would tell you. Even he went before the silence like a sheep to the slaughter. He didn't even defend himself because he knew where his defense was coming from. And so what happens is we need to be people that understand that justice, in this quote, justice is getting what is deserved. So even when you stand before the judge, he's still just. You will get what you deserve. Justice will be served. It's going to be served on you or served on Jesus. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. That means I'm getting off because justice is being served to Jesus. That's what the cross about justice being served. And then grace is getting what Jesus deserves. So you're telling me that even though I'm guilty as charged, justice is still being served. Yes, Jesus paid the fine on the cross. Mercy is I'm not having to pay it because I get off scot-free. Yes, and grace is now, not only do you get off scot-free, you get the attorney's bill. He pays you instead of you paying him. How much better does it get than that? Like how much better? Yes, he's a judge, but he's a just judge and he's loving. And the greatest illustration I've ever heard was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to evangelistically speak for a second, which means I'm lying. 
There's a true story, not true, of a young woman driving through Rogersville. She's going 56 in the 55 zone. Gets pulled over, because you know that's what they do. Gets pulled over, taken to the side. She doesn't have her driver's license with her. She doesn't have a taillight out. She has all this stuff going on. He writes her a ticket for $2,000, because that's what Rogersville does. She has to go to court. She forgets about the court date. Call her. She reschedules the court date. She goes back to court. She goes for the judge. The single mom, three kids, husband's, ex-husband's not paying child support. She's broke. She couldn't afford to pay for the tail light. She couldn't pay to, pay to get her license back. She's dead broke. It's for the judge. The judge says, hey, listen, are you guilty? She says, yes, I'm guilty. He said, well, you need to pay the fine of $2,000 or you got to spend a week in jail. She says, well, I can't afford $2,000. If I had the $2,000, I would have fixed the tail light. I would have got my license back. She said, I was only going to 56 and a 55. He said, well, you're still guilty. You need to pay the fine of $2,000. And she just pleaded and wept. She's like, I don't have the money. And he says, well, then you have to spend a week in prison or jail. She said, but I have four young kids at home that need their mom. I don't have a support system. I can't go to jail. And she's weeping and crying and pleading for the judge. And she's weeping. I can't afford it. I can't go to jail. And she's guilty, but she's weeping for mercy. And the judge simply comes from around the bench, takes off his robe, comes down to her side, doesn't say a word, takes out his checkbook, writes a check for $2,000 to the city of Rogerville and says RIP on it. Comes back around, puts his robe back on, says, ma'am, the court finds you guilty as charged. But it seems as if someone came and paid your fine for you. So now you're free to go. What happened? Justice and mercy were both served at the same time. Jesus can set aside his authority to walk in love. But he never sets aside his love to walk in his authority. And so when it says Jesus is this is the principle... If Peter was preaching this Jesus' judge in his gospel message to the Gentiles who had never heard the gospel, it's probably extremely important to the gospel message that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. The only question is, will we have a defender or not? Well, how do I get to be my defender? Literally, I plead my mercy, confession to him, is literally saying, I need you, I am guilty. And I think one of the reasons why the church is weak is because we don't confess our sin. We, 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 we plead for just a new start or a fresh beginning. No, you need mercy because you're guilty. And so confession is, Jesus, I need you to be my attorney. I'm guilty. Like, I can't go before this judge like this because if I do, I'm going to be judged. I'm going away for a long time. Jesus, I'm guilty. I need you. And here's what I'll say. Here's the price. Here's the price of my attorney's fees. You die to yourself and you follow me. You die to yourself. You die to what you want to do. You die to your opinions, your thing, and you follow me, and I'm going to defend you every single day of your life. Anytime the accuser comes, I'm going to defend you. You ain't got to worry about it. I got you. So you confess, you repent, you don't do it again, and then you begin walking with your attorney 
into the courts of heaven where now you can plead your case for blessings and for mercy, but also for power. And Psalm 100 says this, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Why am I going into his courts with praise? Because I'm praising my attorney for my victory ahead of time. I ain't ever walked into court happy. I mean, you never walked into court praising. But when you see your attorney, it's almost like walking into a wedding. When you see your bride standing there and you see a, a groom all teared up as his bride is walking in, he's happy and excited. Why? Because somebody's there for him. When you walk into the courtroom and you see Jesus, your defender, it should rouse something up in you that you're excited and you're grateful and there's praise in it. Like you should be thanksgiving. But here's the caveat. Here's the caveat, that if he's my defender and he defends my case and I get off. Could you imagine this young lady? She gets off, the judge pays her $2,000 fine. Says, you're guilty, but you're free to go. She says, oh, praise God. And she pulls out of the Rogerville City Court and she floors it, giving the bird to the cops, going 75 and 45. Peace out, suckers. When she gets brought back to the court, what's gonna happen? That judge is not going to pay her fine again. And some of us, we experience the mercy of God. You experience the mercy of God. You feel that cleanliness, that purity, that new beginning, that fresh start. And you take advantage of it and you go right back to what you were doing before. I promise you, it gets a little bit harder for your defense attorney to represent you when you're a repeat criminal. And this is what it says in Romans 2. It's Paul's talking about it. He says this. He said, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4. Or do you presume? Everybody say presume. It means you feel entitled to expect something from him? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What he's saying is, why do you think you can keep doing what you're doing judging other people, doing the same things, thinking you're right because you are presuming that because you're special, God is going to have mercy and kindness and forgiveness and forbearance and patience with you again. Why would he do it again? And what he says, if you act like that or think like that, you're actually storing up wrath for yourself because your attorney is going to be like, God, I've had this case once before. He actually says, like this young woman, when the judge comes and pays her fine and she's free, that that act of kindness was to lead her to repentance, to turn away from what she was in, to begin to follow the teaching and the law because it was fulfilled in Jesus. We are people in our culture, we presume the kindness and forbearance of God thinking we keep using it as a, as a coin get out of free jail card 
what he's, what he's saying is that when he's kind to you, when he lets you off the hook, it's to help you repent so you don't have to come to the court ever again. So I want you, I want you to stand to your feet all over the room. If I have some more altar team come forward. And, and there's two things we're calling for. Two things. One is this. We're walking into the courts of heaven. And some of you have had the accuser accusing you of things, and you need something from God the Father. Legally, you can claim that in Jesus' name because he's given you his inheritance and his authority. So you can make a legal claim. That's our prayer is making a legal claim on something God promised you that the enemy is trying to take from you. You can make claim to that, whether it's a job, whether it's healing, whether it's you know restoration of your marriage. You can claim hold of things legally in the courtroom of God. So that's one. If you need prayer for anything to, to grab a hold, they're going to pray for you. But number two is this. We're going to do it differently. That maybe you have been guilty and you've been trying to defend yourself. Try to talk about even to, to yourself or to God how good you are, how, you know, I'm not going to do that again. You know, I've tried that and I'm not going to do that again. And you keep going through the cycle. And you've actually taken advantage of God's kindness to create a cycle of forgiveness and, and mercy. Forgiveness and mercy that turns into forgiveness and intentional sin. Forgiveness and intentional sin. Forgiveness and intentional sin. I'm here to tell you, I would not presume anything about the love of God that has to have him set aside who he truly is just to take care of you. So the second one is this. It's an act of repentance. I'm gonna gonna take God's kindness. The fact I'm still alive, I'm still breathing, I'm still here. That that act of kindness is he's trying to lead me into repentance so that Jesus can be my defender in the quorum of God. And I can be walking in peace, joy, hope. We're going to open that altar up. And I'm telling you, you say, well, I don't, Pastor, I don't know if I need to come down front. Yes, you do. Because if you've been presuming on the, on the kindness of God, you need to make a step of action towards the throne of God and the judge of God to ask for mercy and plead for mercy to the righteous judge who has already condemned you by the law. He wants to show you mercy, but you have to ask for it. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for your authority, for your justice, for your righteousness, for your grace. And right now, for every person in this room, Father, I pray for a revelation of the authority they have, legal authority they have in heaven to take claim of things that you've promised them and you've given them. Father, secondly, for people in this room, I pray for the spirit of conviction for those who have walked in intentional sin, presuming the kindness and forbearance and patience of you. Father, I pray that you lead them into repentance, that Father, they can plead for mercy, that Father, you will judge the living and the dead. And when you judge, Father, there is no second chances. It is the final judgment. Everything will be separated, and you will make every wrong right and every life restored. So Father, we bless you. We thank you in Jesus' name.